And for the rest of us, uh, we are going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Genesis. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone would love to bring you a Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this morning. First book of the Bible, 12 chapters in. If you think about it, we live in a world in which people, institutions, businesses make promises and then seek to fulfill those promises. So a business, if you just think of it, really rises and falls on their promise. So Amazon promises two-day delivery. When they don't deliver on that promise, we get a little bit frustrated, do we not? I write an email to someone somewhere and try to get some sort of financial reimbursement because they promise two-day delivery. And then we wait on day one. We sort of sit in the gap between their promise and the fulfillment of that promise two days later. Politicians make promises and seek to fulfill those promises. Businesses, financial advisors say, invest your money in me and I'll give you a 6% uh, interest return on your investment. We, We just live in the sea of people, institutions, businesses, making promises and then seeking to fulfill those promises. When I was in sixth grade, I ran for treasurer. It was the only time I ever ran for office. And it was in sixth grade. And I had this great idea that basically my campaign promise was that I was going to turn my elementary school into a Willy Wonka factory. And so before Obama was talking about universal health care, I was promising universal candy care. And to sort of, which preached, let me just tell you, all right? And so... At the end of my great campaign speech, from what I remember, I incentivized the student body to vote for me by throwing candy out into the audience, right? And then I basically said something to the effect, if I remember correctly, of a vote for Stephen is the only sweet vote. (laughs) You're probably guessing right. I lost bad, okay? Landslide. I lost in a runaway election. The other guy beat me really bad. And when I look back on how I lost so badly, I realize is that the student population was hoping that I could deliver on that promise. They were hoping, but a week went by and they're looking around and they're like, there's no free candy around here. And so inevitably, when I could not fulfill my promise, they rebelled and voted for the other guy. This is the world we live in. We live in a world, we live in a sea of promises, and those promises, whether it's from people or institutions or businesses, are seeking to fulfill those promises. And that's, in some ways, what's difficult about living in this world. We live in the gap between those two realities, promises and fulfillment. And all the while, we sit standing in the middle, wondering, are the people the institutions and the businesses in our realm going to fulfill their promises. And it really is not just a religious thing. Like, it's not just Christians or religious people who stand in the gap. All of us 
whether you're religious or not, whether you go to church or not, all of us stand in the gap between promises and fulfillment. And I think probably in the last few decades, it might become, or it might have become harder and harder to believe in people's promises. And so deep down, we want to believe journalists, we want to believe professors, we want to believe politicians, we want to believe that businesses have the consumer's best interest at heart. We want to believe these sort of things, but we've been burned. We've been burned. And so sometimes as we're standing in the gap between promises and fulfillment, we are slowly becoming more jaded, more skeptical. And I think downstream, really what my concern is and why I wanted to preach through this sermon series, I think downstream there is a problem. Because in the midst of us becoming jaded or having more and more skepticism, I wonder if that skepticism has slowly trickled into the church such that now we're having a hard time believing in God and his promises as well. So this fall, we're going to look at the kind of the story of Abraham from beginning in basically the end of chapter 11 all the way to chapter 23. We're going to take kind of a week at a time this fall, and we're going to look at Abraham because in many ways he is a perfect example of a man who lived in the gap between the promises of God and their fulfillment. And this morning what we're going to see is an extraordinary promise that God gives to Abraham and, second, God's dedication in fulfilling that promise. And so my, my hope, my prayer all this fall is going to be, wherever you're at is, that you leave each week and you leave this sermon series with a deepening trust in God's character and God's promises for your life. Because all of us live in the gap, which is why we're calling this sermon series Living in the Gap. So the big idea this morning is simply this. Though it might not look like it, God always comes through on his promises. Turn with me to chapter 11. We're going to actually start in chapter 11, verse 27. And this is going to just set the stage. We're going to be introduced to this family starting in verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So that just kind of sets the scene. At the end of chapter 11, we meet this family, Terah and his three sons. And they reside in Ur of Chaldeans, which might not mean anything to you. It is in modern day Iraq, but it was a modern city. It was 
an important city back when Abram was living. So you can think of it out of the, the Tokyo or the, the London or the New York City of its time. It was an important city. And we meet this ordinary family, a father, three sons, some daughter-in-laws, and some grandchildren. But no sooner than we meet them, we learn something very interesting about this ordinary family. This family is on the move, aren't they? They're leaving their home in the Ur of Chaldeans, and they're moving toward Canaan, at least some of them. Now, we live in a time where we move a lot, and we don't really necessarily think about it, but we, we move from city to city and location to location, but this did not happen when Abram was living. Your family and your city and the town you grew up was very, very important to you because it was your social safety net. So you needed protection. Your family was there to protect you. You needed financial help. Your family was there. To leave your home was to leave your social, financial, emotional, social net. Like the closest I can think to a modern illustration, and it's a bad illustration, like it's a negative illustration, the closest I can think about would be the mob. Okay? Just give me a sec. So if you know of Mario Puzo's The Godfather, just think about it. You've got this entire family. Some of them are biological family members. Some of them are not. And they all take care of each other. They all protect each other. They all financially invest in each other's lives, all in their connection to the patriarch of the family, the godfather. That's what it was like growing up when Abram was living. This family, this kin, they all worked together, encouraged each other, lived together, and helped each other out. And so to leave your hometown was to leave everything. It was to leave your social safety net. And yet Abram and his wife, his nephew Lot, and some others leave their home and begin to pilgrim to Canaan. Now, the Ur of Chaldeans, cool city, modern city. Canaan, not great. It was not like a cool, sophisticated, great region. It it was constantly, people are fighting constantly. There's all these different people groups in there fighting over this land. It was like the Ukraine of the day, like do you really want it? You're like, oh, I don't know. It's complicated. I'm, I'm not trying to go there right now. And so Abram, we get introduced to this family, and all we know is that they're leaving everything, including their gods, which are territorial in that sense. They're leaving everything to go to a land. And the question that we need to ask is, why would Abram do this? Why would he leave everything in order to move his family to Canaan. And we learn, starting in verse 1. So chapter 12, verse 1 to 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from the country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, 
Abram passed through the land of the place of Shechem to the oak of Marah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So, starting in chapter 1, we find out our reason for why Abram would leave everything in the Ur of Chaldeans and move toward Canaan. God shows up. Really, God shows up and gives Abram this amazing promise. And Abram decides to exchange the promise of his family's social safety net, and he's going to exchange the promises that he's gotten, and he's going to exchange it for a better promise, a heavenly promise, a divine promise, God's promise. Verse 1. God tells Abram, Go from the country of your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God says, God like shows up in a pagan land, to a pagan guy. Abram's a, a pagan guy. He's worshiping false gods at this point. And he tells him, I want you to leave it all. Leave the, the, the family farm. I want you to leave your friends. Leave your aunts and uncles that love you. Leave the community you've invested in. I want you to leave all of that. And I want you to go west. And I think it's interesting. It's not even like, it's like a cryptic promise at this point, right? He just says, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you and Abram's like, well, where's that? And he's like, oh, just go left. Just turn left and you'll get there eventually. I mean, it's so abstract that it's almost ridiculous. And I think in some sense, maybe this sounds strange, that this man would leave everything. This woman would leave everything. This family unit would leave everything and follow God. But in some sense, isn't this the testimony of all Christians? I mean, all Christians have different testimonies. God works in our lives in very di- different ways. But all of our testimonies are basically God showing up in our lives and saying, follow me and I'll take care of the rest. And you're like, well, what's my life going to be? Like, where are you going to take me? And God doesn't tell us, right? God doesn't exactly explain all the details of our lives. He just says, come, follow me, and I'll, I'll be with you on your journey. And that's what we have here. Abram didn't know everything at this point, but he took a step of faith. And he kept on going. Even though he didn't, at this point, know the specifics of this promise, he followed God. But then he finds out the specifics of it in verse 2. He says, God says to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blesses Abram with an extraordinary promise. And basically, theologians want to kind of clump this promise here in Genesis 12. We're going to see it again in 15 and again in 17. But basically, we can kind of take this promise that we see in these few verses at the beginning of chapter 12 
into kind of three buckets or three promises. Offspring, land, universal blessing. Those are the three promises God gives Abram. I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you universal blessing. And you're like, cool. I mean, if I'm Abram, I'm like, well, that sounds really cool. Like, but that seems kind of random. It shouldn't if you were actually reading the entire book of Genesis. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, are in the garden, and they sin and get, in one sense, kicked out of the garden. They lose a place. They lose a land. They lose Eden. And then you have this strife, this curse or the consequence of sin comes into the world, and you have this strife, this enmity between the man and the woman. And you see, really, from Genesis 4 all the way to Genesis 11, you see a working out of the consequences of sin. Or you could put it this way. From chapter 4 to chapter 11, you see the working out of the curse of God upon all of humanity because of sin. And so you've got Noah, you've got Babel, you've got Cain and Abel, right? You've got all these stories that are all about God's judgment on humanity, the, just, I know, the breaking apart of society, all because of sin. And right here, with this promise, God is saying, I am going to reverse the curse that was given in chapter 3 because of sin. I'm going to reverse it, and my antidote to, in part, the curse of sin is Abram. I'm going to reverse the curse through Abram. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you offspring. And I'm going to give you universal blessing. And those three things are going to be the manner in which I am going to reverse the curse of sin. That's my antidote. Which is amazing. When you read the New Testament, Paul calls the word, this word, this promise that God gave to Abram, he calls it the good news, the gospel. Because in many ways it is the gospel. Abram is going to be a new Adam. A a new people are going to be formed through Abram. And then there's going to be universal blessing through this new man, Abram. So it's amazing I mean, Abram doesn't really know all this, but he's like, this is going to be an amazing promise. The hope of the world is attached to Abram at this point in redemptive history, but Houston, we got a problem. You guys see it when I read it? There is one problem, one huge problem, one extraordinary problem that comes with one word. Chapter 11, verse 30. Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren. She has no children because she can't have any children. So God calls Abram to leave everything and says, I want you to go to a land that I call you, and here are the promises. The promises are you and Sarah are going to have children that are going to do amazing things, and Abram's like, well, we've we've seen all the doctors, we've done all the, the things, and we can't have children. From his perspective, From his community's perspective, from his entire experience, he's like, there's no way that you can come through on your promise, God. I like the promise. It's a great promise. It's a glorious promise. But God, it's impossible. 
Verse 4. This is really strange. Look what Abram does. In light of the impossibility of God fulfilling his promise, verse 4, Abram went as the Lord told him. It's extraordinary. Abram travels to Canaan. He arrives there, and then God shows up again and says, see this land? Here it is. It's yours and your offspring. He, gives, he just reiterates the promise. And then basically what Abram does is he goes all throughout the promised land, all through Canaan, and he worships God in different locations. He builds monuments, and basically, without a sword, he claims by divine right that land at that moment as his for his offspring, even though he still doesn't have any offspring. It's extraordinary. It, it, it really is no wonder that the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, picks up in chapter 11, and in the kind of hall of faith, he talks about Abram more than anyone. And in chapter 11, verse 8, he says, Abraham, same guy, obeyed and went out not knowing where he was. And, he, and the author says, we should, we should emulate our faith off of Abram's faith. We should live like Abram lived. Because what Abram is doing is what all of us have to do every single day when we wake up and go to bed. We live in the gap between promises and fulfillment. Not just human promises and their fulfillment, but God's promise and the fulfillment of those promises. And here, Abram is a positive example of us, for us, in what it looks like to follow God. We are children of Abraham, aren't we? We are children of that same promise. And so we too are called to live in the gap between the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises. So my question to you is, what promises that God has made in his word are you having a hard time believing? And I'm guessing at least for some of us, we're like, I have no idea. Maybe you're not sure. Well, I think often faith is seen most clearly, or maybe we could say a lack of faith is seen most clearly in adversity, right? Adversity introduces a man to himself sort of idea. Because often, we know this in our lives, what comes on the heels of a victory? Often, it's a trial. And so what we see here is this great victory of Abram and his faith, but on the heels of that victory comes a trial, starting in verse 10. We move from faith to famine, from trust to a trial. Let's read it, starting in verse 10. Now there was famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a, you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, I don't know why that's a problem. And when the Egyptians see, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. There's the problem. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the prince of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And, when the, woman was and, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
And for her sake, he dealt with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, This is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on to the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So we move from faith to famine, and that word is an important word in this whole story because it's a test. There's famine in the land, severe famine in the land, and severe famine in the land means that the promise that God has given Abram is in jeopardy. Starvation equals death. Death equals no children. No children equals God did not fulfill his promise. So Abram decides to take matters into his own hands and says, well, the only logical solution to my problem is to go down to Egypt. Egypt had this thing called the Nile. And in many ways, where lots of places had lots of famines, Egypt was thought to be famine-proof. And so, while there was famine in Canaan, there was no famine in Egypt. And so the logical choice from Abram's perspective is we got to go down south to Egypt to get some food, to wait out this famine because our hope, our salvation, our food is down south in Egypt. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God, what what am I going to do? He takes matters into his own hands. Now, the trial for Abram was physical famine, was it not? But the trials that come to us, the sort of famines that come into our lives, can be physical, but they can also be spiritual, emotional, social. We all live, as we're living in the gap between God's God's promise and his fulfillment, all of us come to trials daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. Trials come to us. Famines come to us in all sorts of forms. They can come to us in a bill that we have no idea how to pay. The famines can come to us with a wayward child, with a diagnosis, with the slow suffering of mental illness, with the, just the slow simmering hardship of hard relationships, with a, a friendship that was going great, but then all of a sudden gets derailed because of gossip or them saying something behind your back. I mean, famines come in all sorts of forms. Question is, what do we do when the trials come, when adversity comes to us? How is it that we respond? The trial for Abram was physical. The trials for us come in all sorts of forms. James says in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he says something really interesting. He says, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Basically, he says that trials and adversity comes into your life purposed to actually test your faith so that the testing of your faith would produce perseverance and steadfastness, and that you should be responding to adversity with one characteristic, joy. So if you're like, I don't know what promises I'm not believing in God, well, maybe you should step back and say, what am I not joyful about in my life right now? Because often it's hard to meet the trials in our lives, the suffering in our life, the famine in our life, to use that metaphor, with joy. But those trials, those adversities, those famines are meant to produce in us perseverance. They're meant to deepen our faith in the promises of God. Well, famine arrives in Abram's life. In response, he goes down to Egypt, but he's got a problem. Uh, His wife is drop-dead gorgeous. And that's a problem to Abram because he's worried that as they start walking down, that people are going to see how beautiful she is, kill Abram, and take Sarai to be his wife. That's his fear. It's reasonable. It's also pretty cowardly. And so Abram goes, I got this great idea on how I'm going to protect, maybe not you, Sarai, but certainly protect me. You're going to just say you're my sister. Which is not exactly a lie. We, we learn later in Genesis that she technically is, like biologically speaking, the, his half-sister. So it's not exactly a lie. And it's for the sake of protecting the promises of God, right? So he goes about this plan. And as you can imagine, it goes sideways really fast. His wife indeed is beautiful, and she is seen indeed as beautiful, and she is taken because of her beauty. And she's put into the Egyptian uh, kind of harem of wives of the Pharaoh. Interestingly enough, Abram isn't killed. Instead, he gets rich off of this. Did you notice this? I mean, whoo, it's real bad for Sarai. It's real good for Abram. He gets stinking rich. That doesn't look like rich, like sheep, donkeys, and male and female donkeys, but like this is like he just hit the jackpot. He got rich off of this whole endeavor. But there is a problem, and every time he looks at his newfound wealth, he's reminded that he's got wealth, but he's got no wife. And he can do nothing about it. He is a stranger in a foreign land. He is a nobody. He's got some money, but he doesn't have enough to buy his wife back. And here we learn something amazing. Really what this whole chapter is getting at. You see, the promises of God hinge not on the character of Abram. They ultimately hinge on the character of God. And God shows up, as only God does. And Pharaoh realizes that Sarai is, well, married to Abram. 
So a plague comes. God sends a plague to Pharaoh and his house. And then Pharaoh basically says, what are you doing? Why'd you lie to me? It's interesting that Pharaoh takes the moral high ground on Abram. And then says, take her and get the heck out of Dodge. I don't want to see your face ever again. He doesn't even take back the wealth. He just goes, just get out of here. I don't want any part to play in this. And then the narrative ends in chapter 13 with Abram, Sarai, back in Canaan with all of his newfound riches, once again in the same cities that he built monuments to before the famine. And he's calling on the name of the Lord as if Egypt never happened. It really is an extraordinary mercy that God brings to Abram, even when Abram nearly screws the entire thing up. It really does take an unpredictable route, the story does. I mean, fundamentally, you, you're just assuming, okay, Abram, good guy. Yes, he believed, he followed, he didn't even know where he was going. Great, he's a great, faithful man. And then you get to Egypt and you're like, oh, real, real bad. Like, sell, selling your wife out to another man, like, not, not good, okay? Ah, uh, evil. Uh, he's going to get judged by God, right? We just assume, like, this is the narrative, right? Eye for an eye, God's going to now judge Abram. And, and we kind of assume that because of how the narrative has been going since this. Like Adam and Eve, sin, and they are, in one sense, cursed. They, there are consequences. But the real turn is that we see no hint of curse from God on Abram and Sarai as a result of this whole Egyptian debacle. All Abram and Sarai get is blessing. instead of cursing, that they deserved. Or at least Abram deserved. I don't know what part Sarai played in this. So even in Abram's weakness, even in his sin, Abram learns the lesson that is the big idea before you. Though it didn't look like it when he was in Egypt, God's promises always come true. God promises. They come true because they're ultimately connected to God's character, not the character of us. And that is such good news for all of us. Now, just to be clear, this is not letting Abram off the hook. This doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we live. My guess is Abram and Sarai had to go through marriage counseling for another decade after this holy thing, right? But it does mean, and the real lesson for us, as though it might not look like it. It might not look like God's sitting on his throne, God's reigning, God's winning. It might not look like it in our experiences. We might look around at our family and our community and our society and our church and go, it doesn't look like you're fulfilling your promises. Experientially, that might be true in one sense, and yet at the exact same time, you can't forfeit what God has promised to fulfill. If God has said that he will accomplish something, God will accomplish that very thing. God always comes through on his promises. You see, he did so in Genesis 12 when God brought Abram and Sarai and their whole family up out of Egypt. And you're going to see this pattern over and over and over again in the Bible, are you not? Later on, God's people are in Egypt again. And then God, in the book of Exodus, brings his people out of Egypt. And then God's people are once again in exile in Babylon. And God, what does he do? He brings his people out of of exile. 
Because he promised to do that. And then, for us, in the ultimate way, when all of these promises given to Abram find their ultimate and final fulfillment in Jesus Christ, we find out that all those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ can be brought out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son. God's promises always, fully, and finally find their fulfillment Now, the hard thing, as we see in Abram's life and in all of our life, is we are still in the gap. There are lots of things that God has said he's going to do that he has not fulfilled yet. And so we're in the gap between the ages. Jesus has not returned. There are still injustices that have not been righted. There is still crying and sorrow. There are lots of promises that have not been fulfilled. And so we stand in the gap. But the beautiful thing about the Bible and the beautiful thing about this story is that we're reminded that as we straddle the ages, as we live in the gap between God's promises and his fulfillment, we have story after story after story about God fulfilling his promises. So in those moments in which you're like, I got to take things into my own hands. I got to fix this because God's dropping the ball on this. Abram's life is a reminder to us all that God will do it. Abram dies, never really seeing much of God's promises fulfilled. He sees some of them that we're going to see, but not all of them. We too see some of God's promises fulfilled, but not all of them. And we, like Abram, are called to live in the gap and to fill that gap with faith because we know that ultimately It's not just the promise. What really will help you is to realize that the character of God is the very thing that hinges or roots or cements our faith in God's promises. We can't forfeit what God has promised to fulfill. Let's pray. God, we... uh, We thank you for your word to us this morning. And we pray, Lord, that as we live in the gap between your promises and the fulfillment of those promises, we we pray, Lord, that you would deepen our trust and faith in your promises, ultimately the promise of Jesus Christ, and that in so doing, we might live more faithful lives in this world. There's so many people vying for our attention, wanting us to be so anxious about what's going on. But Lord, we pray that one of the the prophetic things that we could do as our church is that we could be steady in the midst of the storm that's going on out there. Steady us by by rooting our, our hearts and our souls and our minds in your word, in your promises, because we know that you will fulfill them. You have wrapped up your character in them. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that, encourage us, and give us perseverance to continue to walk with you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.